with you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we thank you for this text, Lord. Your, your word endures forever. Your love endures forever. Father, as we come in and we hear uh, your word, we are carrying many different things, Father, throughout the week, throughout our lives. And Father, in this time, in this space, we lay them down. I pray that we would hear the hum of the sound system. I pray that we would feel the hardness of the chair underneath us. That we would feel the air conditioning and, and the grace that is here and uh, being out of the humidity. God, I pray that we would be present in this space, Lord, because you are here, and you are here to guide us. And so, Father, as I speak, as our hearts and our minds are moved, Lord, I pray that it would be a sweet, sweet sound in your, in your ear. We thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, just the other, uh, just the other week, I was at a pool, and there was a two-year-old named Sonny. And he was splashing around, playing the way kids do, and he locked eyes on one of those foam pool noodles, you know, the ones I'm talking about. He just locked eyes on it, scrambled out of the water, made a beeline for it, grabbed it. He's splashing around, having a great time, until his older sister, Roma, she sees it, grabs it. He instantly just starts bawling, right? Just crying. And she, on the other hand, she is as calm and cool and cool as a cucumber, right? She just, uh, she's just playing with it next to him as he's crying. And in his tears, he's, you can hear him saying, somebody do something, right? It wasn't fair. Well, that's what this, this song is all about. More than envy, it's about the unfairness that affects us all. Whether you're a toddler or you're a teen, you're in your 20s or you're nearing retirement, we all crave that ever-elusive fair treatment from other people or life in general. And deep down inside, we always we feel that good things should happen to good people and bad things to bad people. It's only fair. In this psalm, we see that the psalmist, he's crying out not just at the prosperity of other people, but the prosperity of the wicked, those who don't deserve it. And our hearts, they cry out with him whenever we're passed over for a promotion and our colleague who cuts corners gets it. Or deeper yet, if one of our loved ones comes down with uh, cancer, diabetes, a heart condition, even though that they're the ones that the, the family depended on, the, the ones who we could rally and, and that gave selflessly to uh, their friends and neighbors, it begs the question, God, are you really fair? Are you oblivious? powerless, good, or are you even there? So let's break down the prosperity of the wicked, and we want to see what the desires, the struggles and insights of the psalmist, what they have to do with us. And so we'll look at first the frustration of the afflicted, the obliviousness of the wicked, and thirdly, the realization that brings relief. So first, it's the frustration of the afflicted. Second, the obliviousness of the wicked. 
and thirdly, the realization that brings relief. So first, the frustration of the afflicted. What's the psalmist's core complaint? Let's look in verses 13 through 14. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Simply put, the psalmist is tired of being good. Right? Why? Because as he struggles to remain faithful and pure, all he seems to get in return are afflictions. And then he looks over at the wicked and he sees all they seem to get are the things that he feels he deserves. Have you ever felt like you've done everything right, made all the right choices in life, but somehow you're behind others who are cutting corners? So as for health, the psalmist is the type to have trusted in God, right? And he, he eats healthy, exercises, but he still has health issues. While the wicked, on the other hand, verses 4 and 5, their bodies are healthy and strong. They're not plagued by human ills. They could eat chili dogs for breakfast and still lose weight, right? They don't have cancer, diabetes, a heart condition. They don't have any restrict, restrictions in their movements. They're comfortable in and with their bodies. As for wealth, the psalmist is the type to have trusted in God, give sacrificially, uh, give sacrificially, charitably, and struggles financially. While the wicked, on the other hand, verse 12, they go on amassing wealth. Something happens in the economy and it cripples almost everyone else, but not the wicked, because they're free to take advantage of anything and anyone, and they have the resources to do it. As for happiness, the psalmist is the type to have trusted in God and is always concerned about the needs of others and hardly has a moment for himself. While the wicked, verse 5, is free from common human burdens, verse 12, always free of care. No anxiety, no depression, no stress. The rent, paid. Cell phone bills, paid. Uh, college tuition, paid. There's no waiting on uh, customer service trying to get the internet back up. They can wear what they want, do what they want, when they want to do it. As for acceptance and power, the psalmist is the type to have trusted in God, but is rejected from several friend groups, and is minimized in decision-making conversations. While the wicked, in verse 10, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Not only are they in charge, but they uh, have influence and approval from uh, an approval rating that is through the roof, at least with their own people. And they're looked at as wise and they're given respect and honor. Right? So in sum, the psalmist feels neglected by God and desires to be healthy, wealthy, happy, accepted, and powerful. But isn't this what we all want? Aren't these good things, and doesn't God want good things for us too? In fact, it actually sounds a little bit like what the Bible says we'll one day experience in the new heavens and the new earth. In Revelation 21, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We'll be free from care. And then later in Revelation, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, 
and I will be their God, and they will be my children. We will have all we need. So is it bad to want to experience a little bit of your heaven now? Is it bad to want comfort? So that's point number one, the frustration of the afflicted. Let's move into the second point, the obliviousness of the wicked. What the, these prosperous wicked, what are they like? The passage tells us that they have callous hearts in verse 7. In verse 6, the, the pride, that pride is their necklace, and, that they, and in verse 8, they, they threaten oppression. So what does that look like? Well, a callous heart is thick, it's insensitive, and it's oblivious to the plight of others. But not just that, they're not just oblivious to the suffering of others, they become prideful and they look down on others, right? What's more, from their positions of privilege, they actually start to do harm. Okay, so that's what they're like. How does one start down this path, this path of becoming a person uh, who is wicked? Whether it's the, uh, the TV series Breaking Bad, or the characters Darth Vader, the Joker, the Wicked Witch of the West, or one of uh, the shooters and one of the many shootings of late, we, there's always a curiosity to know, how did this happen? What's the genesis of this wickedness? So what does the, the psalmist claim is the root cause of the callous and wicked heart? To discover this, we zero in on a very important word in verse 6, therefore. Whenever you see therefore in a text, your spidey sense should flare up and you should think, what is the therefore, therefore? So in verses 4 and 5, it says, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from common human burdens, they're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace, so on and so forth. Do you see the predicament? The very things that the psalmist desires most, that we desire most, the things we want and hope for, to be prosperous, that we feel we deserve, to be healthy, strong, uh, free from burdens, are the very genesis, the very slippery breeding ground of a callous and wicked heart. But how is this so? Well, when you don't struggle with something that someone else does, it's easy to slip into the mindset of, you can do it, I did it. When you've had success, it's easy to feel that you've worked hard for it and you deserve it, and so that others should and can too. It leads to pride. And stories of triumph can unwittingly become wicked and callous when we don't acknowledge the very real struggle of the person presently dealing with it. Even the best of intentions to offer hope and solutions can become oblivious daggers, uh, oblivious daggers, and this happens on an individual level as well as on a corporate level. So at, um, at Redeemer downtown, there's a diaconate that I'm on, and we have a, a WhatsApp group, and uh, a deaconess, she recently sent this quote from author K.J. Ramsey. When the church amplifies stories of healing and overcoming without also elevating stories of sustaining grace, she, the church, is not adequately forming souls to hold on to hope. If the majority of stories we hear are tales of triumph, we will question the worth of our stories when healing doesn't come. God, in his wisdom, in his hidden purposes, allows some of our sufferings to linger 
and the church unintentionally turns hearts away from the heart of God when she does not hold space for the sacred mystery that weakness reveals God's strength. Do you hear that? We unintentionally turn hearts away. We become callous and wicked when we don't hold space for weakness, when we rush in to fix or to cheer up. That's how many of you singles out there have, um, have gotten that painful pep talk that you never wanted? Or how many uh, couples struggling with infertility have had someone suggest adoption? Now, you might say that these are just misunderstandings or slights. They're not wicked. But it's these small, repetitive, oblivious moments that lead to the calluses possible for larger injustices to emerge. Homelessness, mass incarceration, racism, gender inequality, to name a few. And again, we see this plainly in the psalm as being carefree leads to pride, grows to callousness, then to violence, then to oppression. We're all desperately trying to escape suffering, and the longer that we, the longer the vacation that we manage to take from it, the less that we want to come back and deal with it. So the frustration of the afflicted, the obliviousness of the wicked, and now the realization that brings relief. Let's step back a bit. I want to clarify, are we saying that we should want to suffer? Are we saying that if we suffer, then we won't be wicked, we won't be callous? Unfortunately, the answer to that is no. As I mentioned in passing, we've had several mass shootings lately, and a common denominator in many of the shooters is that they have suffered in some way. In fact, they've suffered a great deal. You see, when we suffer at the, uh, when we're bullied by the prosperous wicked, uh, we can in turn become a callous kind of suffering wicked. And we see this here in the psalm as the psalmist almost slipped, not because of prosperity, but because he was angry and focused on what he deserved, and it almost made him oblivious to the final plight of the prosperous wicked. So, so on the one hand, if you're shielded from suffering, if you benefit from unfairness, then you're prone to become wicked out of, of, out of obliviousness, right? But on the other hand, if you suffer, if you're treated unfairly, you're still prone to become wicked out of anger and envy. So what's the solution? How do, we, how do we move past this cycle of wickedness? How do we escape? The psalm, the psalm, I think, tells us it's actually dangerous for us to be treated fairly. Instead of fairness, what we need is mercy to satisfy and pacify. So let me say that again. It's actually dangerous for us to be treated fairly. What we need instead of fairness is mercy to satisfy and pacify. Walk with me, if you will, into the sanctuary in verses 16 through 18. When I tried to understand all this, the prosperity of the wicked, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. What did the psalmist, what did the psalmist Understand What did he see and realize when he entered the sanctuary? Slippery ground. Now, to understand what's happening, um, 
we need a little background info about the Jerusalem temple. So if you will, put on your Leviticus thinking caps with me. Uh, you see, no one could enter the, the holy place of the sanctuary and be with a holy and perfect God without first encountering a massive altar back in the center of the courtyard. And its central location is significant because it reminded worshipers that as they came to this pure and perfect God, it meant there could be absolutely no wickedness present. The whole point of the sacrificial system was set up so that by God so that we could never remain oblivious any time we had hurt another person. We couldn't pay it, we had to pay attention to our own wickedness. And so with animal sacrifices happening on back at the altar, you can imagine what slippery ground might refer to, right? It was a messy scene. And as the psalmist stepped foot into the sanctuary, as he stepped foot into the sanctuary with blood still on his shoes, no doubt, he realized it was his own wickedness, his callousness toward God and other people that these animals had paid his admittance price. He didn't deserve to be with a pure and perfect God, but he was given God's presence anyway. He realized that he was a brute beast. He was the prosperous wicked. Now I'm guessing that we've all felt this startling prick of conviction from time to time. How often have we ridden the subway and um, been on the subway car and someone entered our car and heard something like this? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, excuse the interruption, and before they can continue with what they've said, we've put the headphones in, or we've diverted our eyes, or we continue a conversation with a friend as if we didn't hear. Or maybe we even give a couple of dollars to quiet our guilty conscience temporarily. But how often do we see that person and look them in the eyes? How often do we sit with them and hear their story. So as the psalmist stood with blood still on his shoes in the sanctuary in the presence of God, he realized with relief that he didn't receive or need fairness. What he needed and received was mercy. He could only have this closeness with God to be in the home, safety, and hands of his creator king, the only one with a truly pure heart because of the blood spilled by these animals. But the prosperous wicked, the oblivious and callous-hearted, the ones who scoffed at God and the pains of other people who didn't believe that they could do any wrong, they would never be allowed into this sanctuary. Not because they were wicked, because the psalmist himself was wicked. It was because they were oblivious to their wickedness and oblivious to their need for the healing that comes with God's mercy. And it's this realization, the dangerous ground of a prosperous wicked, that they would one day lose communion with this pure and holy God forever that melted the psalmist's heart from frustration and anger to pity and compassion and a desire to save. When Jesus came into that very same temple in Jerusalem, that Passover, over 900 years later, and he entered, uh, he entered the courtyard, and he saw the large altar in the center. He also saw the, the wicked and prosperous money changers turning a profit on those who could only afford 
doves for sacrifices. And it was the absolute purity of Jesus' heart that caused him to become furious and to flip over the tables. You're making my house a den of robbers, you prosperous wicked. He heard the frustration of the afflicted and had to do something. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes, the purer a heart, the more horrified at evil, but so also the purer a heart, the more it is naturally drawn out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. In other words, a pure heart absolutely hates, abhors evil, and it must absolutely seek to relieve, to correct, to heal, to comfort. In other words, God cannot remain oblivious. It goes against his very nature. And so it was this very same absolute purity of Jesus' heart that compelled him later that week to forgive the wicked for their callousness and obliviousness and say, as he bled, not bled and died, nailed to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're oblivious. They don't see how helping themselves at the expense of others is wicked. They don't see how indifference to suffering is wicked. They don't realize that this blood pooling up at the foot of the cross, this altar, is their portion of mercy poured out for them, the prosperous wicked. Oh, my suffering sweethearts, I see you. I saw your destiny and I had to do something. And so I gladly give up everything to be with you. Jesus is not oblivious, but he does forgive us for our obliviousness. It's not fairness, it's mercy. And we've received more than our fair share of mercy from God in Jesus Christ. So how do we then share some of this mercy with others? I'm gonna give us an acronym here because they, they help me, and the acronym that I have for you is SLIP, S-L-I-P. S, sit and listen to the suffering of others and be slow to give advice for a pep talk. Stay a while with them on their cross. And so this means that uh, to allow for the suffering of your suffering and their suffering to coexist. It's not a competition. Suffering is suffering and it always hurts. So S, sit and listen to the suffering of others. L, let yourself be inconvenienced. As I've said, I've been saying, being too comfortable all the time makes us callous. So L, let yourself be inconvenienced. I, investigate your prayer requests. If you were to look at all of your prayer requests and God were to grant them all, would they move you closer to becoming callous and prosperous and callous or move you closer to becoming uh, the outpouring sacrificial character of God? When was the last time that, that you prayed that God would use you to correct injustice? So I investigate your prayer requests. And P, Pursue those who are good at sustained suffering. Pursue, this is those who hold on to the hope that they have in Jesus without, um, even, even when it seems fruitless. 
And so this means reaching out to the poor, the marginalized, the sick, for a different reason, to learn. Too often we slip into the, the mindset of helping when we ourselves are the ones who are standing on slippery ground. So P, pursue those who are good at sustaining suffering. So let's recap. S, sit and listen to the suffering of others. L, let yourself be inconvenienced. I, investigate your prayer requests. And P, pursue those who are good at sustaining suffering. So if I ask you the next time I see you, if you've been slipping, you can say yes, but God's got me. Yeah. And all of this, all of this is hard, really hard. I hear you because we ourselves are still suffering. So how do we do it? I want to leave our eyes on the portion that the psalmist came to treasure. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The spaces that God calls us to place our feet, they don't always look safe, fair, or profitable. But he has a holy and pure heart, and like a good father, he disciplines those he loves, and he fills us with mercy. He invites us to join him in helping a hurting world. And the hand that holds yours, it bears the marks of his sincere and pure heart for you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Your portion is mercy, and it is as endless as the sea. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy. You pour out mercy upon mercy. God, so often we, we get lulled into comfort and we feel the creep of uh, our lifestyle becoming more and more something that suits us, Father. And I, Lord, I just, I pray that you would challenge me, you challenge all of us, Father, to sit, to be still, to pay attention to all of those who are around us, and to, Father, to use us to, to take the mercy that, of the goodness that you have poured out in our lives with your presence, with your mercy, Father, and extend that to others, Lord. We thank you for seeing us, Lord. We thank you that you couldn't sit still, that you had to do something. Father, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.